Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Well, welcome back to another episode of Protect and Serve. And what an evening we have lined up. You know, I've spent the past six months um, carrying out numerous interviews with extraordinary men and women in law enforcement, not only here in the UK, but I've looked more broadly overseas in different jurisdictions to understand the complexities and the challenges of policing all over the world, because the challenges are not just exclusive to the UK. And I've had a lot of feedback in terms of the positivity that we focused on in terms of reflecting on some of these incredible careers. But equally, I've had feedback that we should probably be focusing on some of the greater challenges that UK the UK policing faces, sorry, and more importantly, the Metropolitan Police, which sadly has faced many, many challenges over the last six months of officers involved in some of the most concerning scandals and significant arrests which have been made for truly horrific crimes. And with that in mind, I've put together this evening a bit of a guest panel to talk to me and for us to openly discuss these challenges the Met faces. And I've posed a question to our panel. If they were in the position that Sir Mark Rowley now finds himself in as the head of the Metropolitan Police, what were the top three things that they would consider in terms of being able to bring policing back into a positive light and to increase a public confidence in the London Police Service, which is renowned globally for the work it has carried out over hundreds of years. So without further ado, let me introduce my guests. My first guest, Rory Gagan, has an incredible background from policing the streets of Lambeth 
to taking up a position as a direct entry inspector in Thames Valley Police and then as a special advisor to the Prime Minister in number 10, specialising in home affairs and more importantly, the portfolio of policing and law enforcement. Rory, good evening. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, good evening. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us. And my next guest really doesn't need an introduction because she is so incredibly well known throughout the UK in terms of her background in the policing herself with experience in the Flying Squad in the Metropolitan Police. And furthermore, her experiences post-policing in providing uh, continual commentary on where policing should go, commentary on policing in the current day, and more importantly, her expertise in certainly in front of the screen on how these parts of policing should be portrayed. Jackie Moulton, welcome to the podcast. How are you this evening? Uh, thank you very much, Oliver, for asking me. And yes, I am very, very well. Thank you very much indeed. Looking forward to chatting with you and Rory. So importantly, let's start at the top. Policing Jackie is in a difficult predicament this, this, at the moment. Metropolitan Police, we're going to be exclusively focusing on this evening. And I think all of us around the, the, the microphones this evening will agree that this is a positive experience for us in terms of trying to look into some of the things that we think would be important for the Met and for Sir Mark to consider. When I pose that question, the three important things that you think are important to Sir Mark, and if you were in his position, what would they be to you? Well, first of all, I, I do want to say that, you know, I've not come uh, on, on this podcast to, you know, criticise the Metropolitan Police. I have some observations, of course I do, but, you know, I know it goes without saying, but it we have to say it, that the huge majority of police officers within the Metropolitan Police go to work every day doing the best that they possibly can. And, um, and I just want to, you know, thank them for that. I also want to say about the new commissioner um, and his uh, turnaround plan for 2023 to 2025, and with his deputy commissioner Lynn Owens, who you know would no doubt and have printed off their plan to change around the Metropolitan Police from the position that it finds itself in. But but you know um, I am uh, I, I was a career detective, and so one of the first questions I'd have to ask myself if I was a commissioner, in order to change it, of course is what has gone wrong. And what, what I mean about what has gone wrong in, 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 in terms of recruitment, in terms of vetting, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, the results of the um, Operation Hobson report, and in particular, uh, Wayne Cousins, murder of Sarah Everard, and of late David Carrick. So I need to know what happened what was the procedures in relation to the David Carrick's behaviour, the allegations that were made against him, um, and what those respective police forces did with those allegations, why the allegations were withdrawn. So it's a forensic examination of what went wrong in order for us to understand it. And what the procedures were, where the allegation has been withdrawn by uh, the complainant, why did they withdraw the, the, the allegation? And what did the respective force, including the Metropolitan Police, do with that allegation? And where did the information go to that would show somehow that we were joining the dots 
in the behaviours of David Carrick because it's obvious, isn't it, that nobody joined the dots in terms of um, his behaviour. And, of course, huge criticism for that. And to be honest, quite rightly so. And, and that we have to look at also other cases in the past in order to know what's gone wrong in the cases of Stephen Port and uh, Carl Beach. And I know they're old cases, but there is a pattern, isn't there, that has emerged within the Metropolitan Police of, um, of things that have been uh, catastrophic, really, in terms of um, public trust in the police. And that includes, of course, things like the WhatsApp group and stuff. Now, I know this is all kind of quite obvious, but if I was commissioner, I'd need to know in huge detail about what went wrong in those systems and we need to know that in order to change it. Operationally, one thing that worried me in the past week that I, I, I learned of in terms of what Sir Mark was talking about in terms of the vetting and then picking up of flags and issues with officers is if, 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 a, if an officer lives within the boundaries of, for instance, Thames Valley or in Kent, if they get an interaction with local law enforcement, whether it be a domestic violence incident, whether it be an issue at a pub, whatever the case may be, that that doesn't flag up necessarily on the systems within the force that they're associated to. So if I'm part of the Met and I get into a pickle within Kent, the systems don't flag up that I've had that interaction. So professional standards, to my knowledge, won't pick up there's an issue which needs further examination. Roy, am I right? Is that an issue? I mean, that, that certainly that's my understanding also from both reporting and um, sort of talking to various people. I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's true as well, arguably. I mean, in a way, it takes us all the way back to like SOAM and the issue of data sharing and databases and the fact that, you know, even mm. even on crime, never mind crime and interactions with police, even that is like limited to basically the police national database, which itself everyone sort of accepts and needs to be replaced. And yet that is what we're, I say we, the police is sort of pinning its hopes on for kind of doing a bit of a stock take of, of where things are at. Um I also happen to think that um, Jackie's completely right on this need for a forensic um, examination. I think it's also not a it's not a kind of we must either do a forensic examination or also get on with some stuff. I think it's kind of that there's there's some very low hanging fruit that I think um, the commissioner could go after. Um, you know, I don't want to sound like some sort of, uh, you know, uniform sort of fetishist or something, but you know, even just the standard of uniform, just to pick on it in the same way as you might in healthcare settings, pick on, you know, hand hygiene as a, as a proxy for kind of what's going on in an organization. I think the fact mm. that uniform standards are so varied, um, the fact that you only need to go on YouTube and you can see two officers turn up to the same thing and one can look very professional and smart and the other one, the, frankly, the complete opposite in some cases, I think speaks to an environment in which standards aren't being upheld and if they're not being upheld they're either being upheld because people don't feel able to uphold them they fear being pilloried or otherwise um undermined for doing so or else they just don't see the value in perhaps that particular standard and and by extension perhaps some others and so for me there's just some very low-hanging fruit that looking through the turnaround plan and and like jackie i mean i'm i'm not on here to have a pop at the met i'm on here to just contribute hopefully objectively and constructively to 
to help the Met be the best it can be. And I'm certainly, I'm sure, like others, convinced that it can and should be the best force in the world. But mm. the turnaround plan talks, I think, a bit too high level on some of this stuff. It seems to, um, I think, have a bit of an emphasis and maybe too much of an emphasis on on some of the some of the themes and issues that are quite rightly of concern, but more so to kind of some of the activists, more so to some of the kind of political folk. And I, I think there's a there's a more sort of grassrootsy piece here of how do we just generally improve the standard for the everyday sort of officer? And I think uniform is a an example of that. And and so if if you know if I were ever fortunate enough to end up as a as as the commissioner and thinking about something, I'd probably pick a date. Um, not months and years into the future, but soon, uh, you know, in the next four weeks, I'd pick a date and say, from this date forward, there's a new regime and I'm expecting officers to be paraded and inspected on their uniform, their appearance and their appointments at the beginning of every shift. Um, and I think that would empower a whole raft of, you know, that would empower every supervisor that needed empowering to start taking an interest in the uniform standard. And perhaps that then also gives them the way in to other issues. I don't want to sound I don't want to sound ancient here because I am ancient and I accept that. But you know that was the process of when people paraded for duty. Yes, that was the process that they would be uh, inspected um, as to the standards of their uniform. That was just an everyday occurrence on every shift that you paraded for. But does this go back to the very fact that we have removed? the training colleges which we would have our recruits attend where we would establish this pattern of behavior and this expectation of how you look you know look good feel good be professional standards which need to be met we are a regimental organization there is a chain of command there is a rank which you know if, if you're sergeant you know i'm only a 2004 era uh, police officer and in 2004 sergeants to me was a god if you had to go and see your sergeant god forbid your inspector there were serious issues in terms of what your performance or what was going wrong is there an argument that these training colleges where we send our recruits to understand the very basics of what we expect of them no longer exists because it would appear that the first time you actually see a human being when you go into the police is actually when they size you up for your uniform could sir mark look at those issues objectively and say this is where we need to create the foundation of discipline and expectation yeah and i've done kind of quite a lot of uh, always looking research and stuff and look at um, remarks from you know on other kind of uh, twitter and facebook pages and stuff and you know there is a huge swell of support from uh, officers retired officers i know that and lots of criticism comes well they, these are retired and blah, blah, blah. Um, but nevertheless, I think that the training school, you know, did sort out the wheat from the chaff, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it was very, very strict, not only uh, about the um, subject matters that you had to learn, but equally about your standards of dress, discipline. And, and also, it's like anything isn't it? that These behaviours that we have witnessed, unfortunately, by some of these officers, they, they would leak out. They would leak out at the training school and that they would be stamped upon um, quite quickly. And then the officers spoke and see whether or not that they would be seen by the training school as a, a, a candidate for the Metropolitan Police. And I, you know, I, I would support 
uh, going back to the uh, training school regime and uh, those training programs and continued uh, training throughout that two-year probationary period which will sort those uh, officers out. Um, and I think that's hugely, hugely important but of course there's a cost there isn't there attached to that but nevertheless you know we can't be into short-termism you know we are under a government that is always into short-termism and trying to deal with long-term problems with short-term objectives so i'm a true you know you can't do that with the police you cannot do that so i think your suggestion there oliver about you know establishing recruitment and training looking at that would be something that I would do. Um, and you, you see, the other thing is, this is not, this is really not, it's not a criticism. I'm only quoting Matthew Parr from the HMIC, who wrote three days ago about, you know, vetting. And there is a concern to recruit officers of diversity, uh, which is great, which is absolutely great. But what he has discovered, he's an HMI, remember, that, um, that the recruitment was uh, had ambitious targets. And in trying to improve diversity, to be more representative of the community, has resulted in some applicants being accepted who can barely, uh, can, can barely write in English. And this cannot be at the experience of standards because the Met are taking too much risk with candidates. And so you've got this tension between volume, quality, and uh, diversity. So, uh, and that's the HMI reporting that. And, and I don't, I don't know that this, this, the recruitment standard issue. I think um, you know, there's a lot of people who want to say that there's nothing to see here. You know, we're recruiting better officers than ever before. You know, there's, there's, there are folk who say that. But I mean, I'm, I'm. I remember going for interview as a special to be a special constable in the Met years ago, twenty eleven ish thereabouts, and I remember turning up to Hendon for interview, and I remember see in person as opposed to any sort of online thing, uh, and uh, I remember seeing in the waiting room for interview, you know, a room full of people, some of them in tracksuits, some of them literally as they rolled out of bed that morning, um, and I just remember thinking, God, there's no way these guys are going to get through. Come on, you know. Um, and lo and behold, <laughs> you know, lo and behold, you know, fast forward however many weeks or months and, oh, hello. Um, and, and, you know, even, even day one of training turning up and, you know, uh, just, you know, mind boggling. And, and some of this stuff is, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying these, these people shouldn't be in policing, right? Like, I don't think anyone is saying that, but there's a question about, has anyone actually explained to them the error of their ways? And the fact that actually you are joining a uniform discipline service or you should be joining a uniform discipline service. And there are certain expectations. And if that's not for you, then have a think about it. And you can, you know, there's there's a whole economy out there. So, you know, go and find something that does sort of suit you. On the other hand, if it's just that you have maybe grown up in an environment where there haven't been either certain expectations placed on you, maybe you went to a school with no uniform policy. And so uniform is, is just something you've not understood. Then then by all means, now take the opportunity to fix it. But from my experience then through into the mid 2010s where you know the met were um passing people who had failed the english test they'd failed the english test they were passing them and saying well do your training 
which of course is in English, um, so you might struggle with that, but crack on, and then at the end of it, when you finally hit the streets, um, you can do some remedial training, which, by the way, we won't follow up on. So, you know, what does that, you know, but again, this, I think this comes back to an issue for the Met, which is one of silos, which is one of who, who, who owns the quality of new recruits? Who owns trainership? Who's accountable for training, for training and, and, and recruitment? And I think for me, there's a, there's a part of this, which is almost, you know, at risk of sounding a bit conspiratorial. For me, there's something about the deep Met, like what is the part of the Met that, drive some of these things that are more sort of support service than visible frontline you know if, if anyone was to try and name people who've lost their heads recently in terms of you know leaders and others in in the met you know it is only ever seemingly the commissioner who goes right like everyone points to the commissioner when something goes wrong but you know these are issues of recruitment training hr you know on and on it goes it look at overspends look at all the services that at one one minute they're you know falling over and they need to be replaced then we seem to spend hundreds of millions of pounds and then actually it fails and so we go back to the thing that was was not fit for purpose um so for me there is just this this bigger issue that i think the commissioner any commissioner would face taking this on which is actually have i got the right people in the right roles and how on earth do i go about man marking these individuals um and you know from my experience if you will in number 10 in government um you know god you you need you do need a small army of people that you can rely on to go and probe and push and challenge and hold accountable the people who are and should be accountable for delivering those things so second on my list would be um building a, a mini army a mini uh, coalition of 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 the great and good to come in and um really drive on some of these key areas Jackie, I, on that point, we talk about the importance of good supervision and good leadership. And one of the points that Sir Mark is looking into now, which is part of one of my recommendations around recruitment and training, is around the recruitment and the training and the development of frontline leadership. Sergeants, inspectors and superintendents really are the front lines of policing, silver commanders, you know, your inspectors, your bronze commanders and your sergeants. If those men and women are operating at their optimum levels with the, with the most amount of skills they can have, it's my view your police force is going to a police service is going to operate quite effectively because they are your core frontline people. Do you agree with that? Would you like to see more training invested into those frontline management positions? No, absolutely I would. So I would totally you know, agree with that because one of the other things that I read about was that was about you know uh, acting the acting role in terms of leadership so you would have acting kind of sergeants who a, a lot of acting sergeants and that was kind of um i was hearing the other day that somebody just out of their probation was now an acting sergeant uh, and and i'd have to say kind of what leadership ability would this person have at just 2.2 years service that uh, and so leadership, I think they were saying as well, that leadership is not taught in the same way that it's taught in the military. The number of hours that military officers have far outweighs by hundreds of hours, actually, the training that frontline leaders should have. Um, and so I would definitely agree with you. And um, I, I think, and also I think, you know, I think one of the, also the other points is about um, 
that the that we we need to we need to learn to um, accept kind of external criticism. And I like the Rory's idea of well, this little army of, of going in. And I also uh, think that the you know the Met culture is one of defensiveness as well. Um, and it always has been defensive. It was defensive in, in my t my terms, quite insular. It is quite a defensive organisation, and it's important that we that the Met have to be much more open and transparent, accept external criticism, know when to stop fighting, uh, and also to to kind of you know accept advice as well. And I think that's really really important in being you know transparent and they have been criticisms of the met in terms of the daniel morgan investigation in terms of um recent officer being reinstated after high court decision and you know the met were fighting all the way uh, to get rid of that particular officer where uh, the tribunal had agreed to give the job back to the officer and that was also um approved or seen uh, as the right thing to do by the High Court. So sometimes the Met needs to be less uh, defensive. And in that culture, that culture will go all the way down and all the way down to, you know, those front, front leaders, that, the front leadership roles that you spoke about earlier on. You've really got to have much more openness, transparency. And to be perfectly honest, you're not there to be their mate. You're not there to be anybody's mate. You're there, like you said earlier on, you know, one of you said, you know, if you called him, you said that, Oliver, and you called in to see the sergeants or expects, and then then you're naturally, you're thinking, what on earth is going on now? So I do feel that it's about strong leadership has to be, you know, the way forward. Yeah, I think your point on uh, the sort of the defensiveness of the Met and and maybe some other sort of elements within policing. I, I've often wondered how much of that is born of a sort of a, a, a strange insecurity almost. And I don't know, I've sort of, I've sort of puzzled as to why be quite so defensive. And I, you know, and maybe it's the natural reaction when you feel as though for 20 years, maybe you've, you've been under attack, uh, you know, and so, and so you, you do just become defensive. But I do wonder the degree to which. Well, it's 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 like you know that uh, talking about the last twenty years, and um, I, I can talk about the last fifty years. And what happens is historically, from my point of view, that the police have always been defensive since the day that I joined the job. In terms of they think that they kind of know best. And in the early days of working in partnership in the nineteen eighties, where we started to work in partnership. For example, when I was at Hammersmith, I set up the second domestic violence unit in the 80s. And Hammersmith and Fulham were a Labour council. They were doing great, you know, kind of great work, but were seen as having policing units in those days. And therefore, I was told that I couldn't speak to the policing unit within Hammersmith and Fulham. You say, it got renamed Community Safety or whatever. And I said, well, don't be so ridiculous. Do not, how can you not speak to the local authority? So I went along, 
So when the police set up partnerships, they always wanted to be in charge. They wanted to run it. They wanted to set the agenda. They wanted to organise everything. We said, no, hold on a minute. You have to listen. You have to listen to other people's points of view. So when we set up the domestic violence intervention, uh, sorry, the domestic violence forum, then the police weren't in charge. And it was a huge problem for the police to step back because they've always presumed that it's been in charge of uh, partnership or or anything else, to be perfectly honest. And, and therefore, and, and the defensiveness comes from a cultural thing within the organisation that they know best. They actually know best when often they didn't. And it's not about being attacked for the last 20 years. This was way, way, way back, way back that they were have always been defensive. And you can look at any of those kind of cases where the Metropolitan Police have had to uh, pay out compensation for wrongful arrest or whatever, and the police will always say, we do not, uh, you know, we're not kind of accepting what was said, but nevertheless, we will pay out. I think it's really interesting too, because for a for an organisation then that's been defensive for, for decades you'd think they'd have got a bit better at being um, <laughs> defensive. I think I think often there are some own goals. Often I think, you know, look at, take London, take Stop and Search, you know, which I think, you know, let's not forget that the vast majority of people support it. Um, but, you know, every newspaper, it's, you know, Stop and Search X times more likely if you're this colour than that colour to be stopped and searched. And yet nobody, nobody has put out ever, as far as I know, stats on, you know, the number of young men last week who received, you know, life-saving first aid from police officers, right? Nobody nobody seems to be on the front foot with, you know, nobody seems to have stepped from being defensive into being more explanatory, but also kind of being more proactive. It, you know, for me, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a rapid rebuttal unit because I think that that arguably feeds more of this sort of defensiveness. But there certainly needs, I think, to be a more much more proactive attempt from the Met to communicate, to educate, to explain. And and I think they can do that in a way, you know, particularly with modern technology, to talk about, you know, when 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 there are six officers on one person, that actually, in most cases, will be the safest uh, approach. But of course, nobody ever seems to sort of put that out. And, and it's no good only putting these messages out in crisis. They should be available for people uh, in, in, in the rest of the times. Um, so for me, there is this thing, and it comes back, I think, Jackie, to your point about transparency, transparency and communication. You know, the, the skills that as a police officer on the street you would deploy to win people over and to keep the peace, I think are the same things that we need to see writ large now. So, so it brings me on to my next point, which is one of my greatest worries for British policing and particularly the Met is it seems to be over-politicised and it seems to be very much, in my view, taken over to some extent, academia-wise, in terms of the expectations placed on, on applicants coming in with this with this requirement now for a degree. But let's talk about the politicised part. We have police and crime commissioners. The one in London is Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, who sits in that position and is overseeing, obviously, the, the you know police resources and the budgets and, and, and overseeing Sir Mark's role. Is there a fear, Rory, that the policing has become over-politicised and that, that really in concept policing is fundamentally quite simple and the fact of it's to keep Londoners safe and ultimately to respond to their needs and expectations when a crime is committed and to try and solve that crime and put bad guys and girls in jail? I, th I, th I mean, I think it's really interesting because you hear a lot about, um, you know, the over-politicisation of policing. 
And I guess I'm I'm always curious to understand what different people mean when they when they say that because there's a fundamental truth that policing, you know, hopefully will forever be a, a public service, right? Like, you know, bloody hope so. Uh, and um, if it's public money that's going into policing, then there's always going to be a need for some governance over that. Uh, you know, and the, and the governance model that we have in the West predominantly is is a, a dem- democratic one and with elected, um, uh, you know, officials, elected politicians. And so there's always going to be some political overlay. I think that the challenge for the Met in particular at the moment is that you know we've we've ended up in a place where the the mayor of london is of one party and of one political outlook on on various issues and obviously a government and a home secretary in particular from the policing and crime side who is of a different view um and a different party and i guess in essence that for the met in particular more so perhaps than any other force in the country it leaves the commissioner maybe struggling to try and ride as it were two horses at once um and I think to a degree we see that in the in the turnaround plan. Um, we see the fact that it talks about crime, which obviously the, the government of the day uh, is very keen to tackle. Um, but it also talks an awful lot too about uh, equality, diversity, anti-racism and so on, which is much more of the the mayor of London's kind of position. And certainly Stop and Search doesn't feature much other than to say it's you know of, of, of some concern or, or words to that effect um, and so for me I think it's a it is a real challenge and I'm struck by if you look back to the days of NYPD uh, back in the 90s and their desperate need for a turnaround perhaps less so from a kind of crisis of of misconduct more a crisis of just failing to get a grip at all of crime and you know th- there was a mayor there who had a very clear desire to sort of clean up the streets fight crime and obviously a, a commissioner in the form of Bill Bratton who who turned it around for him. And I guess the challenge for uh, Sir Mark is that, you know, who who does he who does he ultimately sort of, you know, side with, for want of a better term, or does he try and sit on that fence? And that fence can become quite uncomfortable, particularly because it, it leaves, uh, you know, the commissioner, I think, you know, in a difficult position of trying to of please two people. You know, when when, um, you know, something awful, let's say, happens next, which could, you know, it could be another misconduct thing that comes up. It could be criminality. It could be just some, you know, horrendous crime with no, no police officer involvement at all in terms of the commissioning of it. And, you know, ultimately, in those moments, you know, those are real crisis moments. And, you know, ultimately, who does he who does he go with? You know, does and and who does what does the mayor say? Does the mayor back the police to fight crime, or does the mayor choose to throw them essentially under the bus? Does the Home Secretary, you know, weigh in with a with a particular position? And where are the media in all of this? And so I think, I think probably almost un, almost almost unique. Uh, certainly, I've not come across um, a major city where you have this this tension between you know, two political kind of beasts, if you will, of a mayor and a home secretary. You know, look at Washington, D.C., where, you know, obviously the, the, the police chief there, obviously the heart of American government, but actually fundamentally D.C. police is more than anything else a local force. And I think this this is where we do end up with a question for the Met, which is what are you more than anything else? Are you a local policing force and you should be essentially run along the lines of the the other 40 plus in the country? Or are we going to continue with this sort of slightly odd 
special status uh, you know and, and and what does that mean structurally do, do we end up going you know as some would say well we should put bits of it off to the nca and we should get the met focused on local um you know i don't think there's any easy answer here other than to say that at some point we're going to have to pick right we're going to have to pick which um which side to go and if you look at the politics more generally i think you know labor doing really well in the polls um you know, some people on polling models today would obviously predict a Labour majority for the future. And if if that were to come to pass, then maybe this crisis of trying to ride two horses disappears. And so put off for another however many years might be this 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 question. Jackie, I wanted to put to you that in the last five, six years, even longer than that, but an awful lot of talent at very senior levels during a period when the Met was doing very well. You know, you look at the last 10, 15 years, the Met was... Obviously, something was brewing because it's reached its pinnacle now and everything's starting to go off a little bit in terms of these firecrackers and these awful reports coming through. But if you were Sir Mark Rowley today sitting in your office, would you be reaching out to people like likes of Neil Basu, who's just walked out of the Met, an incredible policing talent who's got so much still to give? Is there an opportunity for these people to come in, as Rory described, as this kind of army to say, because the Met fundamentally is an organisation with 40,000 people so many portfolios for Sir Mark to see over, which he, you know, he's so reliant upon his executive team to get it right. Is there an argument to bring in people that have done so well previously as support mechanisms for him to make sure this department turns around? Well, I, I think he's already done that by uh, the appointments of Lynn Owens as deputy commissioner. That was a, a, an absolute cracking move. I mean, director general, the most senior position really in policing uh, nationally. Um, phenomenal results from the National Crime Agency um, in her role as Director General, phenomenal results. And uh, I, I'm in awe of the National Crime Agency in many, many ways of the tremendous work that they do in organised crime. So he started that by appointing her. Um, I know it was initially for six months, but let's wait and see. And uh, Neil Basu unbelievably talented officer of you said uh, and I would hopefully wish personally of course that he was would, would be recruited back into uh, the Metropolitan Police to be you know part of that army and I think the points that Rory has made um, regarding you know the difficulties of uh, following two hats if you like one with a Conservative government and one with a Labour leader in, in London, it puts the commission of the police in a, in, a, in a terrible position. So the more that he surrounds himself with the likes of these very talented officers, um, you know, the better. But generally, in police and crime commissioners, you know, I, it's no secret, I'm not a fan of them. <laughs> I'm not a fan of them at all. I'm not too sure what they bring to the table. Um, and, and I'd love... Some, I'm sure there would be somewhere that I've probably missed it, but, you know, a scrutiny of the role that police and crime commissioners play, and they are political. Let's face it, they're all political appointments, very few independent PCCs now. Majority of them are Conservatives, and uh, I'm not too sure what they do, you know, bring to the table. You can't compare... Um, Sadiq Khan and his role as police and crime commissioner with somebody who's a PCC from somewhere else, you know, a provincial force, you can't compare that. You can probably look at the likes of Andy Burnham, etc. But um, for these other forces, I'm not too sure for myself what they 
you know, bring to the table. And I know that they don't have, they're not involved with operational policing, decisions made by the chief constable. Um, but value for money, I'd say definitely not. I mean, not not to, not to turn the, the 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 podcast into a into a you know PCC versus alternate models kind of discussion, but you know it is the model we have. Um, you know, switching back to like police authorities that certainly certainly police authorities uh, had plenty of deficiencies from what I remember. I mean, I think there's a lot more that PCCs and mayors can do. Um, Obviously, devolution more generally at the moment. Obviously, there's all sorts of questions as to how police and crime commissioners and the role of um, policing and crime and how that fits into mayoral models is all kind of live, arguably not live enough in my view, but there we go. Um, I suppose the point I'd make, like you, you know, it's good to see um, the deputy commissioner being, you know, having been sort of brought in. But to me, that doesn't add to the, um, you know, for me, that's just, you know, essentially there was, there's a deputy commissioner role what I think we need to see in the Met is we need to see people being appointed in support of those uh, those folk and to hold some of them to account too for the commissioner. So, um, you know, take IT, right? Like the, the commissioner should be bringing in someone on IT who is uh, sufficiently credible and all the rest of it on technology and digital and what can be done, can push the the CIO or the CTO, the chief information or chief tech officer in the Met can push them and can push the suppliers and can push the providers because, you know, the turnaround plan talks about this new connect system that's going to transform things for frontline officers. And yet you go and speak to frontline officers and they're really struggling with an implementation that is, by the sound of it, not going very well. Um, and, and obviously IT always struggles. But again, take the example of, you know, and I hate to keep bringing up NYPD, but NYPD they they used a huge amount of criminal assets that were seized to fund a major um, rollout of tech. And with that rollout, they brought in an external person to really drive it. And I think the history of the Met on IT has been woeful. So for me anyway, uh, I, I, I still think we, you know, it's great to see some of these uh, individuals coming back in, but I think we need more. I think I think there is a real need for, you know, 20 odd people to come in and, and be the commissioner's eyes and ears and you know, to advocate. And I'd, I'd, I'd really, really agree with that. And funny enough, spoke to, um, before she was ever appointed to Lynn Owen on Twitter, and that was a discussion that we I had with her about that idea that you've just um, suggested. So, Rory, we've, we've spoken a bit at length about what we would feel the, if we were to mark what we would consider to implement in terms of what changes we would want to, to see happen. We've talked about recruitment and training. We've talked about maybe extra layers of governance to hold people to more to account in their positions within the senior executive role because the role is so you know so vast for Sir Mark. He's got a lot of plates spinning. What additionally within your list of three things would you like to see implemented to make sure that the Met is successful in the next 12, 18 months in turning around its reputation? Yeah, so I suppose to build on the accountability kind of theme and the standards theme, I think um, mystery shopping of front offices, mystery shopping of 101 and and even the triple nines, actually, um, you know, unless you're reporting a crime from home or your work, you don't know the postcode that you're in at any given moment. Certainly I don't. Certainly most people don't know the postcode. And yet that's 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 generally speaking one of the first questions when you phone 999. Oh, what's your postcode? Well, I'm on the number 72 bus going through 
Harrow, I mean, or wherever the number 72 bus might go. I don't, I don't know the postcode. And so for me, I think there's just a lot of optimizations that could be learned and, and, and derived from some, some fairly straightforward mystery shopping with a real crime and disorder kind of, how do we really get a grip of, of crime and disorder kind of hat on and efficiencies? Um, the other piece, again, relatedly, and, and the turnaround plan talks a bit about tackling bureaucracy and, 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 you know, freeing up officer time. And for me, there's something here about just as, just as I, look to put the workforce on notice that from this day you know uniform standards inspection etc i'd also be looking at putting partner agencies on notice um and 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 a reciprocal notice right um we'll start collecting data on essentially where we're being sort of messed up um where we're having to wait for x y and z and that's costing us however many hours um and obviously we expect to gain improvement we expect improvement and we expect um to make progress um so so for me there's there's a real i think opportunity around standards and accountability and ownership um for me the other piece too on crime maybe more generally though it obviously spills into trust and and standards is is the borough-based policing model which um I, I i would be looking really hard at bringing back in i mean i i i think having an alignment of your local policing with your local authority is you know it's it's common sense uh and i think that's um that's how public services for local government are organized and 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 i think it's right that police should align with that i also think that would then create a named accountable individual for that borough it would then provide much more surface area shall we say for 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 agencies and partners to work with and you know jackie's probably laughing because it's kind of you know history repeating uh coterminosity i think was the word once used um but essentially i bring back borough policing i think there's also something about having um you know a bit of pride in you know i wore whiskey whiskey on my shoulder i wore lemur x-ray on my shoulder um jackie i'm sure wore i don't know where she whether she was north or south but she'll have worn a letter or, or two on her shoulder and and the letters now are are, are beyond meaningless you know as for i think it's area south or south area and then there are sort of strange places called like central north and i don't know whether there's an east west but you know there could be in this slightly odd world and so for me i think i'd bring that back um th- the other piece too you know obviously there was a time where the violent crime task force needed to be produced needed to be created to try and bring a sort of grip to the the violent crime knife crime issue I was always hopeful that at some point that would morph back into boroughs, that that sort of more centralised asset would become much more sort of locally owned and would become essentially back part of the boroughs. So I'd also be looking at, at what can we do to push that back onto boroughs, you know, in, in creating again the borough model, in in having named accountable uh, leaders, let's also give them some additional resource to tackle the crime and disorder problems they have. Um, and and it, by extension, let's re-embed some of those basic crime-fighting um, tactics. And if I can have one more on crime, I'd, I'd certainly be restoring an expectation that, you know, if you're dealing with someone who's been carrying a knife, if you're dealing with a prolific offender, you know, arrest, charge, remand. Let's Let's send a very clear message. If you're committing crime in London, we will do everything we can. And that means arrest, charge and remand as much as we can. Um, and then uh, I, I can go on. I'm sure you can edit out my... Uh, I'm sure you'll edit it into bits. But shall I just run through a bit on trust quickly, Ollie? Is that all right or not? Let me know. So I think... 
so I think trust is also really important. And I already sort of probably mentioned the the possibility of creating a sort of proactive comms and public insight team. So, you know, their job, I think, would be about publishing meaningful data, meaningful content that can help educate the public, but also give the the cops, right, the guys and girls on the front lines, a sense that the organization is out batting for them in a way that is professional and sensible, in a way that, you know, can be retweeted without fear of seeming to be, you know, kind of either politicized or to be um, problematic. Um, as I say, the, the fact that nobody could tell you today how many um, young men were saved last year by emergency first aid from police officers in London. I think that's a deficiency. I think there's a real opportunity there to capture data. Um, and there are substantial political actors and activists who are parroting narratives that are, you know, either simply false or else go unchallenged. And I think it would be remiss of the Met not to have um, some resource allocated to ensuring that those false narratives are put right and that proactive steps are taken to prevent those narratives from seeding. Uh, Relatedly, I think there's a big role for transparency. I'd I'd be looking I'd be looking at what NYPD what NYPD NYPD did on crime. Um, you know, let's publish weekly crime figures. Let's see where we are year to date versus last year. Let's let's see um, how can it hurt to do that. Um, and let's have that visible for cops, visible for the public. Let, let's put it out there. Let's see how we're doing. Um, and I, for some reason, we we don't seem to have the appetite for that. Um, but I think we should. Jackie, have you got any points to raise on those important points that Roy's raised before I ask my next little question? I have to say that I would, um, you, you know, that I completely agree with everything that Rory has said. I did smile, of course, about his suggestions of the smaller units. And the thing is that, um, you know, Chief superintendents or superintendents had a vice-like grip on their areas, a vice-like grip, and uh, uh, presumably because you know because they wanted to be seen as capable chief superintendents. But it's all it, it is all about uh, being responsible for the area that he or she kind of policed and working with local authorities in partnership together, etc., etc. And um, I never wanted ever as a detective, I was a career detective and I was a DCI, and I never ever wanted my uniform superintendent to tell me something about my department before I ever got to work, you know, because I just, it, it never operated like that because I would get a phone call way before. And I think this, you know, pride in, in, in the areas in kind of which you work, and these borough, uh, basic command units, aren't they? They're huge, absolutely huge. Very, very important that policing is coterminous with local authorities and everything that you said about trust and transparency and everything else, I completely agree with you. So one of the other biggest issues that the Met faces and policing in the UK more broadly, this is certainly not exclusive to the Met, is retention. And at the moment, the retention of officers is very poor. I think we're seeing levels rising at the moment. We can't keep up with the amount that are leaving within five years. It seems that de de degree entry applicants are getting their degrees. They've got their uh, their work experience and on their CV it says police and then they move on to bigger and better things. Rory, how can we retain more of our staff? Obviously, the obvious one would be paying them more. 
But how can we get people to love this job again and see it as a 30-year career or are those days long gone? Are we looking at a five, six, seven years in turnover? You know, but before he answers that, though, Oliver, what the Met needs to do, again, is forensically examine, don't they, in great detail about what, why people are leaving the job and what is it that they're not wanting to stay and, and what was their reason for leaving because the attrition rate is very, very high. So, uh, again, before we ask the question, we need to know one of the what's the problem about why the turnover is so huge and we're not retaining these officers. Do you have any observations on that, Jackie? Have you got any sort of thoughts around why people are leaving in the numbers that they are? Uh, well, some of them are seeing the job as not something that they uh, kind of ever anticipated in the first place. And uh, some of them um, are feeling... Uh, kind of miss no some of them are, are kind of not feeling that they're getting the support within the organization or that supervision where uh, you know from their sergeants and expect inspectors and some are talking about when they leave there is no exit strategy there is no exit interview sorry there is no exit interviews to why you know they are leaving and um, and i think that is you know absolutely sad uh i, I don't know enough i haven't done enough research you know why there's the majority of them are leaving those are the reasons but if i was a commissioner i would look into the reasons why officers feel that the metropolitan police is not for them i think as well i think as well it's it's a bit of an indictment that we don't have uh some of those answers to those perfectly legitimate questions that jackie asks like why why is it that the college of policing don't have um some pretty good evidence around some of these issues. Why is it that, um, to the extent that maybe the the staff associations have looked into this, you know, it 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 can rapidly just turn into a kind of oh, it's all about pay. And I again, I don't, you know, pay is going to be part of it. Of course, it is, particularly in a high inflation sort of environment. But it's not all about pay. You know, anyone who's done policing for for more than probably two minutes, um, you, you either. No, and and you you either fall into love with it pretty quick, or or not at all. And and if if people who've fallen into love with it are then leaving after three, four, five, six, seven, ten, fifteen years, we should want to know why, um, and we should want to know as soon as possible uh, as to why and and what can be done to stop it. And I think I think Greater Manchester are doing some work at the moment on trying to get a bit ahead of it so is there a i forget the the term they're using for i think the process but they're, they're trying to jump in where where someone starts to sort of feel like they're leaving they have an opportunity i think to meet with someone senior to kind of just talk it out throw it around and see what the issues are because i again you know i don't have data but anecdotes at least which is that you know for some people it's about that they're getting to a point where they're having a family the role they're in just is not as compatible as they would like with having a family or they're not feeling as supported in, in, in making it compatible or as much as they can. And, and so some of these things are really not so much to do with money and they're not so much to do with any enormous thing that needs to change. Some of them will be just, maybe their manager just isn't, isn't supporting them, isn't actually listening to them or, or isn't choosing to even offer them an opportunity to be heard. So um, I'd look at Manchester as, for, for some inspiration but yeah we need, we need to get to the bottom of it i think also it probably varies a bit between um between roles because um i think detectives in particular are um obviously we've got this this vacancy issue but the retention i mean the roles available in the private sector for 
investigation um and i'm holly you probably know this better than me and jackie too but you know some of the the roles if you do start to look around and provided you know you feel confident enough and you know you you go for it some people are you know having opportunities to double their salary and all the rest of it and all of a sudden then money does become um an issue and for me that takes us on to the next step which is beyond the retention how do we um allow people to come back you know, if someone decides, you know what, I'm going to go off and be a train driver or I'm going to go off and be um, a fraud investigator for a bank or something. Well, if they ever want to come back, we should, in my view, we should want to have a a pathway or two or three for them to come back in. And, and one that doesn't demean them, one that doesn't belittle them, one that doesn't uh, presume they've forgotten everything and that they must therefore start again. Um, one that accepts that, you know, they made a perfectly adult choice of departing and they're wanting to come back and uh, we should want to make the most of the skills and experience they've got uh, and so for me that's another big gap that needs addressing and for all, for all the talk of police reform over the the last decade or so the 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 amount of time and effort that has gone into this how do you get people back in uh, has been i think sadly pretty woeful i think we, we need some real progress on that the workload is horrific apparently the workload the workload is apparently horrific and just you can't manage it long term you burn out there was a direct i spoke to um direct entry detective who came in and then just left because uh, they couldn't deal with the with the workload um as a direct entry detective and um, you know it's no criticism of them whatsoever <laughs> but they didn't have the training didn't have the experience and there's a huge volume of crime that's be honest that they should not have been dealing with at that level of experience you can't expect you know these young direct detectives to be given you know within a few weeks of, you know serious gbh section 18 or something you know but it is about the volume huge amounts of volume and stuff and also it's about expectations of the society what we expect from life you know if you're on the flying squad for example which is a different ball game now i know but in our in our day you never kind of got home you, you, that was part. That was part of it. You, you suck it up. If you want to be on a flying squad for three years, then the realization is you never knew when you were going to get home, and you can't kind of say, "I've got spinning class on a Tuesday that I go to," you know, that I need to be at. It's just a. It's just a nonsense. And, and therefore, but that's a gen see that that's a generational thing, which I think is the generation behind Rory and I have this expectation. I, I've I've got very good friends that are currently skippers within boroughs around London. And one of their greatest challenges is, and like all of us, if I picked up a, a rather complicated matter, at, you know, an hour before my shift completed, that was my job until I saw it through and finished. I would probably incur three or, four hours, three or four hours overtime to make sure it got done. And nowadays what happens is they're picking up maybe a domestic, maybe a sudden death, you know, two hours prior to shift. And it comes 3 p.m. and they're saying, I'm actually going home now. Uh, I've done my eight hours. I don't want the overtime. I'm handing this off and there's nothing, nobody can compel them to stay. They can go. And, you know, whereas we would say, well, we would even question it. I'm staying, I'll get this done and then I'll go home. So there's a, how do, the generational thing is the hard thing in terms of outlining the expectations of what we expect of our staff and our police officers in terms of their commitment to what is not a job. It does become a bit of a lifestyle and there are sacrifices and, and, and yes, there are impacts on family life. There's no denying that. Uh, in any in any public service, service there is sacrifice, and I just worry that without 
the ability of having a training college like Hendon, we aren't able to manage and set these expectations and set ground rules and really give throughout that 27-week job interview, which is in effect what it is, a realisation of what this job is all about from men and women who live, breathe and sleep it and have done for many years. You're right, it is the culture and the age difference and everything else. Um, yeah, and it's just about expectations of what people want, want from their life and about their family situation and stuff. And uh, I'm not saying my generation was right by any stretch of the imagination. I think, I think as well, to, to, to play a bit of not quite devil's advocate, but I think there's also a societal... So there's a there, there maybe is this generational piece, but I think there's also a societal one that is happening too. And so even if even if someone is in the police themselves of a particular generation, you know, their partner, who may be of the same generation as them, but their partner in their workplace, they have X, they have Y, they have Z. You know, their friends who work at A, B and C, they now get, you know, X, Y and Z. Um, and so why don't why don't you get X, Y and Z from the police? Well, they won't do it. OK, well, let's look for something else then. And so I think the pressures on officers are, are poorly understood, you know, and, and not just about um, not just so much about exit, but just, you know, kind of the, the stuff that bothers them, the stuff that worries them. You know, and, and I think there there's a tendency maybe in the culture to assume that, well, I was OK or or I never had a problem with X. And so therefore you shouldn't. And obviously on some things that may very well be like a perfectly reasonable position to have right on some of the basics. But but I do think there's there's something to be said, I think, for um, for, for us trying to understand that this this whole retention issue and related recruitment and then getting people back in it's kind of we need to understand those pressures so that we can have an attractive offer um and have an attractive offer that gives people enough resilience to weather those you know tough days those tough weeks those tough months even tough years um and i and i suppose again a a, a concern i've got with the turnaround plan as currently configured is it doesn't it doesn't really to me speak to the the workforce in in sort of a clear enough language or with enough of a compelling kind of proposition for them. Um, you know, it talks about rooting out, um, you know, rooting out disproportionality and rooting out, you know, the, the, the corrupt and stuff and obviously rooting out the corrupt completely with that. But kind of what about, what about just making my life a bit easier saying that you're introducing connect, which as I mentioned, like, you know, plenty of people on Twitter kicking off about how terrible it is. That isn't helping me. Um, and, and I think detectives, you know, when, when you've got a phone on your desk from a job and you just want it analysed and the response is, oh, it'll take weeks or months, it doesn't really fill you. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't keep the tank full, doesn't keep that job fresh. And certainly, you know, I think for me, there's there's something about making sure that the, the systems within policing actually encourage and, and support officers to be crime fighting and to be getting charges. The fact the detection rate is is through the floor, I think, speaks as much to the kind of processes of getting stuff done as as much as anything else. To to, to finish, you know, we're just rounding up over an hour now, just to kind of finish on some positivity because I think it's important to reflect of some of the amazing work that is going in going on day in and day out, not only across London but the country. You know, I talk about the challenges ordinary people doing an extraordinary job, and you know, for the 
for the very small few, and it is a very very small few. You know, it's quoted that there are probably a thousand people that the that the commissioner doesn't believe that should be within the Met. I think it was a thousand or fifteen hundred. I can't remember the exact figure, but regardless, there's still thirty nine thousand other people, members of staff, sworn and unsworn, who are doing an incredible job day in day out. They put the uniform on, or they put the suits on, or they put their crime scene schmocks on whatever the case may be and they go and they work incredibly hard in order to serve the people of london and the uk wherever people are based in trying to ensure that people do remain safe and ultimately when members of the public do dial 999 they report a crime a police officer does go there and they will try and investigate at the best of their ability so i think you no, know, there's some incredible work going on i am rather alarmed by the amount of knife crime in london at the moment i it's terrifying to see some of the weapons that people are getting around with and i you know i do fear for the safety of our our officers, but you know they're all well trained, and, and you know we have more firearms officers on the streets than we ever have ever had. So you know there are lots of issues for them to contend with professionally. So, um, but have you got any closing points you want to make, Jackie, in terms of your observations on some of the, the better things that you see going on? Well, I mean, I, I'm a great fan of Twitter, and I just witnessed some amazing work by and bravery uh, by police officers within the Met and the rest of the country to be absolutely fine and. You know what, I feel for them because I know we've had, hopefully, you know, a helpful discussion, but they're battered beyond belief. They're battered by the media. They are battered by members of the public who would rather film them on their mobile phone than go in and help. And they are absolutely battered and, and, and yet do this amazing job in, in, in spite of it. In absolutely in spite of it, and so you know, I am, I am in awe of them because the job, you know, people. I, I would love all those people to criticise or the media just to go and to go in the back of a police car for a shift and just see actually how they do respond and react and things. And um, yeah, I, I, it, the job is much more complicated. It's it, it it's it, it's uh, much more complex than ever. Um, Everything is recorded and they're much more accountable, which is a good thing on on one hand. But on the other, I just kind of think that, you know, this cut and paste of videos that go out and say one story. And I have to agree again with Rory, you know, that I used to uh, look at the LAPD website where the Commissioner of Police would talk about the realities of policing Los Angeles on a daily basis. And he was very <laughs> honest and upfront and uh, and some of the times you want to scream at the Met and just say that you know that whatever their department is uh, um, with the media press and so just say for God's sake get out there get out there and start publicly defending and have a bit of balls just have a bit of courage uh, to put the other side of the, of the story but the police sometimes the police service just takes it and takes it and takes it and the whole context is lost. So I hope that people who listen to this podcast don't feel battered by us because um, that's not, that certainly wasn't my intention. And I apologise if some people feel like that because uh, I, I, I am a huge admirer of the police and they do a far more difficult job than whenever I was in the police all those years ago. So thank you to those officers that are out there and just, you know, carry on doing what you're doing. Rory, any closing remarks from you? I suppose, firstly, 
I'd say, as Jackie has done, to a big thank you to the boys and girls going out, uh, you know, on our behalf, on the public's behalf, um, in spite of all that's gone on. I think um, there's also something, I think, about, uh, you know, courage. And um, it's easy. It's easy to forget, uh, especially when you're in the job, when you're in the job and you're going through doors and you're dealing with people who've got you know weapons on them and are wanting to fight you and are fighting you and everything else you you sort of i think lose sight of actually um how 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 much courage there is even even around you and certainly since i left policing i've um i've looked back and often thought god how on earth you know how on earth did i do that without worrying or without x y and z and so for me uh, yeah a huge thank you i think the other the other issue is um it's easy to kind of uh when when we've spoken a lot about standards um we've spoken a lot about standards and it's easy to sort of take that i think it's easy for for the front line to sort of take that as an attack on them you know i i mentioned uniform and it's easy to sort of assume that that's somehow an attack on the front line officer and of course it, i i don't see it as that i hope they don't see it as that and i suppose what i see this standards conversation and this misconduct kind of conversation to be about more more than it is actually about i think the the individual frontline officer it's about the management and the leadership um and so if you do have stripes on your arm or on your epaulette or on your you know wherever wherever you might wear your stripes or your pips or your crowns i think um you know if anything i think you you guys as it were the leaders really need to recognize the you know the 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 challenge ahead um and i'm sure many of you do etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think for me there's there's just something here about supervisors and leaders need to really step up i think is the is 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 i suppose my closing thought you know the the, the frontline boys and girls certainly the good ones the dedicated ones the crime fighting ones are more than stepping up they step up every day but for me there's there's a real question about what about the rest of the organization and i i you know i don't want to just hate on the bosses as it were but i I do think management and leadership that supervision is critical and we only need to look at the events in memphis to kind of go you know look at those officers well they they only felt able to get away with some of that i suspect because there was a lack of among other things supervision uh, and a lack of of management among other issues and so for me anyway that's that's what i would just leave as a closing thought is you know managers and supervisors be be supervisors be uh, be as courageous as your troops are running through doors and all the rest of it don't feel cowed into well i can't pull up someone because of x y and z of course you can that's what you're that's what you're among other things there for and your troops will love you for it no some really good thoughts um and mine are for the people that do listen to the podcast, and there's quite a vast number of those that just are intrigued about what policing is involved, what what it involves, the challenges that people have faced that have gone before. And for me, it's about those people that are looking to pursue it for a career to really understand what it's about. You know, what are you getting involved into? What are you committing to? What is what is your what are the expectations being placed upon you? And do you really believe deep down you can achieve those? And 
it takes time to be able to grow into the role. It's not something that you can achieve overnight. It took me a good three, four years till I really understood what it meant to be a good, competent police officer. You know, so I did my time on the streets and then I looked to kind of go and specialise and do my thing because I'd learnt the art of communicating with the public effectively. The one thing that could get me into trouble and the one thing that could get me out of trouble. So for me, it's the broad thing of expectations of those coming in to pursue what is an incredible career. Uh, and quite frankly, if I could live it all again, I would, and I would probably stay far more longer. But listen, on behalf of uh, Rory and Jackie, to everybody listening to this podcast, policing and non-policing, thank you ever so much for everything that you're doing out there, protecting and serving, doing an extraordinary job. Uh, we are incredibly grateful for everything that you do and that this discussion comes from a position of love and care for a job that I think the three of us all care about very dearly and want to see it in a better place but on behalf of myself Rory thank you very much for for coming in and 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 giving us your views and Jackie equally thank you ever so much for your expertise it's incredibly appreciative this podcast is brought to you by the public safety foundation the public safety foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live work and raise a family This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.